how has Boaz handled the wealth that he has? And how might that even kind of tell a different story about how you hold something like wealth or privilege or power in a way that is different than accumulation and and earning and striving kinds of conversations. Hey everyone, welcome to episode five of our series on Ruth. We're so excited that you're on this journey with us. We are so appreciative to have you joining us. And if you are still curious about the discussion guides, it's definitely never too late to become a patron of this podcast. Go to patreon.com, search Searching the Sacred, and for a dollar a month or more, you can become a patron and receive the downloads of each of these episodes discussion guides. We'd love to have you extend the conversation to friends, family, and those in your community. Now let's dive into episode five. So this gleaning becomes a big part of chapter two. And so let's think about what gleaning is. And then I want to go back to to verse two after we kind of think about what gleaning is. So um, gleaning, we're going to see pop up in a few places in the text. The word in Hebrew is lakat. And lakat is, um, I kind of actually want to look at it in Leviticus 19. We often in a study, you're going to look at it in Leviticus 23. And note that this practice of gleaning is paired with the festival seasons. And so the fact that barley is happening, uh, that this is the barley harvest that's paired with the timing of the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. And this practice of gleaning is commanded as a part of the festival and Feast of First Fruits. But we're given, we're also given a little bit more detail about it in Leviticus 19 verses um, 9 and 10. And so I think we should go there. I was, I also like Deuteronomy 24. Do you want to go to Deuteronomy 24 instead? Well, I don't know what's in the Leviticus one, so I'm open to both, but Deuteronomy is real good too. Well, okay. I'll read the Leviticus 19 and you read the Deuteronomy. Okay. Okay. So Leviticus 19, nine and 10 says, um, and the reason I, Leviticus 19 is where uh, in the New Testament, Jesus quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus 19. Also in Leviticus 19 is love the stranger or foreigner as yourself. P.S. <laughs> Also in Leviticus 19 are these verses. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not wholly reap, um, finish or complete to the corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings, um, which is like the stuff that you drop of thy harvest. And you shall not glean thy vineyard. Neither shall you gather every grape of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord, your God. Lisa. Okay. So Moses is given his sermon, his big, long Deuteronomy, like his final hurrah. I feel like he's just paraphrasing lots of things that have been taught before, but yep. He's summarizing the whole story. He's summarizing adds a little bit here. Um, when you it's Deuteronomy 24. 19 through uh, 22. Uh, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. 
When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. What do you like about that version of it, Lisa? I like that Moses does a little reminder. Mm-hmm. Like, remember you were here. Like, this is just as much you. Like, the like doing this work is because this is could easily just be you. Mm-hmm. This is how we treat each other as humans. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that you were once a slave in Egypt. Like operate from that place. This maybe goes back to the conversation of grace and seeing things through other people's eyes. Remember that feeling and hold things differently, love other people differently based on the fact that you've had that experience as a people group. You know what hit me for the first time in listening to Lisa read that is the idea of the fatherless. And and I know that I'm making an extreme leap here and this probably is not, this is more speculative like midrash dance than it is actually like factual Hebrew dance. So I just want to point that out. But it instantly reminds me of the language of the Lord's prayer where it's like our father. And so it's like this, this parental, you know, the one who runs the house. Um, and in Egypt, the Israelites were without the one who ran the house. They didn't have like they, God was silent for 400 years of slavery. And now Moses and the people are about to head into the promised land they're about to get the land flowing with milk and honey to have olive branches and to have all of this beautiful vineyards and whatnot. And the, the, the thought is for those that don't have a father. And I wonder if like, you could almost say for those who find themselves with you and the one who runs their house is now silent, don't abandon them because you know what that pain is like when it feels like the one who organizes and orients you is gone don't let that happen for anyone else. And I know that that is not probably how that text is supposed to be read as if it's some like, you know, holding space for those who have lost their God or lost their identity. Um, But I just couldn't help but hear that idea come through, um, especially when it's compared to their time in in Egypt. Well, I think it's one of the ways that we can bring this forward because I think one of the conversations to have about a book like Ruth or a principle like gleaning is to say, what does that mean in the modern world? Like when we don't have a field, um, who are we caring for? How are we caring for them? How are we oriented in this same way? So pulling it forward like that and saying, okay, who in my life is without that protective force? Mm. And what does it mean to be open to them? is a, is a way to carry it forward is a way to sort of ask a different question than you might ask otherwise. And I think that's what scripture is inviting us to do over and over again is to say, what is a question from here that I can ask in my life right now about the people around me and, and what I'm called to do. And if that's the question calling to you is that fatherless peace cling to that, ask about that. Somebody else, the thing that might be speaking to them is about, um, the olive tree mm-hmm. cling to that and wonder about that. Like let think part of it is not being scared to let the thing that shimmers to us shimmer to us. Cause there might be something in that, that we are being pushed to live out or to see. Mm, that's good. That's really good. I think we've been taught to fear 
interpreting interpretations. We're we're taught, taught to fear taking scripture too far. Um, and we want to like, oh, I, this might be too far. And I just, I, I also just wonder what makes us afraid of that. What are we afraid is going to happen if we ask about the fatherless? Mm. Even if that's a quote unquote wrong interpretation of something, is that actually a bad question to ask? <laughs> like, well, I don't think so. Cause I just asked it, but, um, at the same time I did preface it with a whole bunch of like, I don't know. And I'm not sure. And this may be wrong. And so, yeah, I did all that because I'm a, a good former conservative evangelical who was taught one way of reading things. And you don't get to ask a lot of questions of the text. You just get to ask, what does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply to my life? And it was a one-to-one-to-one thing. And so Anytime I deviate from that one-to-one-to-one mentality, I always feel that need to like catch myself. Um, Sometimes that's okay. I'm not, I actually don't mind that I catch myself um, because I don't mind noticing when I'm operating in the, in the place of like curiosity, as opposed to the place of perceived knowledge. And I use that word perceived really intentionally. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I wonder, I mean, I think as listeners, are a part of these conversations with us. Like you're going to see questions that we don't see. That's good. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are not the only places we can go with these texts. Like let yourself wonder about things that we're not wondering about. Cause what if we're designed that way? And that's a part of being in community together for these conversations is needing to hear what somebody else sees that we don't see. Yeah. I mean, someone may very quickly raise the question of, okay, it's great that you're like leaving the little remnants of your field and not picking up after yourselves, but you're basically like leaving the poorest of the poor, the worst of the worst fruit, the stuff that fell on the ground, the stuff that wasn't quite ripe yet. Um, you didn't, you didn't leave them an equal share. You didn't give them half. You didn't distribute it all equal. So like this practice of gleaning, which contextually speaking is probably monumental in how we treat our neighbor um, very quickly is maybe seen as not enough. But if we think about, like, if we think about our lives, like I just, it is not enough. I'm like, yep. but I do think this practice, like I'm, I would be curious, like how, what part of my life right now <laughs> reflects what this does? Mm-hmm. So like in some ways, if you're the person you've got a field and you, you are, you drop something. And if you know you've dropped it, or you've missed it, you've passed it by, or it didn't come off your tree, you didn't shake it good enough, and you leave it there. One, you have to have a recognition that like, oh, that is for the poor, the fatherless, orphan, widow, like whatever language we're going to put on this group of people, this trifecta of people that we should be paying attention to, it puts them in your, it immediately calls them to mind. Yeah. Like how many places in my life right now is that what gets called to mind? That like that's what I think about. Because that's the only reason also to not pick that up because this is where we have to think in the ancient world there are farmers for the sake of their eating and for the sake of their livelihood or wages. So this would be something like I just published a book Something happens on a website. There's a website fluke 
and people get stuff for free on my website fluke they were supposed to be charged and they weren't charged would any business not go back and charge those people would you leave that would you say like oh that that's just i guess that's just supposed to be free or supposed to be for them like think about how american western consumeristic operating thinking goes you don't leave anything on that tree you always take all of the profits all of the like this is asking us to leave profits behind. It's asking us to leave resources behind. It's asking us to leave stuff behind. We don't do that. It's kind of, you know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about like the closest thing I can think in my brain also might be great. Like, you know, when you buy Chipotle and it asks if you want to round up, like, do you want to give to this organization? And it's like, it's a little bit like rounding up all the time. Like if you don't actually like get your, dollar amount to the zeros, you're going to be donating to something. You're going to give that thing away. And in lots of the spaces, we like try to like, we balance our checkbook to the pennies. We look for all the, like some people don't pick up pennies, but a lot of us pick up pennies when we find them. Like we don't, I mean, it breaks down in lots of ways, but also like, we're not taught to like well, and I, and I think it's, it's, I think, so this whole conversation about trying to find an analogy that actually makes sense to the whole practice of gleaning, the, the reason why I think it's so hard for us to do, like a website breaking down and someone getting a free book and wanting to recoup the value, rounding up at Chipotle, picking up pennies on the side, like, like we all have, we have such a hard time trying to find an actual analogy that makes sense to gleaning. And the reason why is we've distanced ourselves from the poor. Like we have literally cut ourselves off in the modern world from being close enough to people that are not in our socioeconomic status so that we don't have to think about it to know that our choices are impacting them. Like the closest we really get is when we stop at the end of an exit or to get on an, to get on a freeway and we're faced with someone holding a sign. And you know you got money in your pocket or you know you got some food in your car somewhere and you have a choice to make. And I feel like although... I don't know what the best thing to do in those situations always is. You hear a thousand different things you should do, shouldn't do all that stuff. And I don't want to, we don't need to debate that today, but like we do not rub shoulders with people that are in need in this way. Whereas it seems again, no, I'm not back there, but it seems that they were very close in proximity to the poor. And the poor were, they, they were known. And so it, it well, made what, a practice like this possible. I want to add to the conversation just to um, the part of the practice that wasn't in, De- in Deuteronomy 24, but was in Leviticus 19, that maybe can actually connect to those two analogies as being better than you guys are both thinking they are for this piece that I'm hearing. I'm hearing in both of those. So hold, hold those stories. We're going to add this piece. So Besides just not picking up what's dropped, when you have a field in Leviticus 19 and 23, what it says is don't harvest all the way to the edges of your field. Leave all of those edges unharvested and don't pick up anything that's dropped. So those are two parts of what it means to leave your field open for cleaning. So if I am in the land of Israel, in in this time period where that's being lived that way, and I'm walking past a field and I see a field with unharvested edges, what do I then know? It's for me. They left it for me. That is gone without getting shot. That is my welcome sign. Mm -hmm. 
Unharvested edges are my welcome sign. This I am meant to walk onto this field. They have left some for me. This is a safe place for me to come harvest. Not only what's on the edges, but there will also be more in the middle. What that means for me as a landowner is, is as a landowner, if that is my field, what am I opening up to? That's an if I'm question. a landowner, what am I opening up to? I'm opening up to people, to what hospitality. People? people that don't look like me, that have that I, I, I don't know what their background is. I don't know what their moral morals are. Like they could come from a different, like whole different culture that could or be they could be your culture. Mine. They could also be your culture. Yeah. If it's the widow, if it's the fatherless, yeah. like that is within your community. Right. And what in both of those in both of those examples, what I am giving up is I am giving up control of who gets that what I've left behind. Right? Yeah, I am inviting anybody onto my field who feels like they need my field. Maybe I really feel like my ministry, quote unquote, should be focused on the fatherless, or I really feel like my ministry, quote unquote, should be focused on people who are foreigners, or it should be focused on people who aren't foreigners. If I'm a landowner and I'm doing gleaning, I'm saying you get to decide if you need my field and you get to come on if your answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was thinking about actually with the rounding up example is I often don't do it because we have specific charities we give to. And so it's not that I can't round up or that I don't give, but I give based on control. Mm -hmm. I give yeah. to the places I want to give to. I don't give to the places that I'm not planning to give to. And so when we, so those, the example, both of the guy on the corner and the rounding up do have that element of, I'm not in control of that. I don't get to decide whether that person deserves it. Maybe that charity wasn't on my radar screen, but I'm choosing this as a practice where I don't have control. I'm just holding my resources loosely so that they can give in to those in need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is not how we operate. <laughs> We even when we're generous, we tend to be very in control of where that generosity goes. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we have to we could even step back further and say this was not just their version of charitable giving, but this was also their economic system of like social structures and um safety nets, right? This is their social safety net. And so we could talk about it as a form of like charitable giving that you know, we give towards, or we could transition this into a conversation, which we probably aren't going to, but we could trans transition this into a conversation about we're part of a democracy that has social programs to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks and go hungry or homeless. And what are we actually supporting and doing to impact those things so that when we pay our taxes, when we are you know, part of our income is going to the social structure of our day, that it's actually meeting the needs of the people that are in need of gleaning. Um, and, and so I think there's a, there's a economic and even political question that you could be asking in this moment about where your money is going and how it's being used. Like, and, and this is maybe is really specific and maybe even almost too far, but are the candidates that you're voting for using the edges of your field to do the good that we're called to do? I also think it's important to think about um, 
because we kind of situate ourselves always as the farmer like the person with all the yeah (laughs) and like i in deuteronomy in particular the reminder is remember remember this time like you came from you like in some ways i think because we always situate ourselves as a landowner, we don't think about the gleaning. Like if I think if I talk to people who have lost their home or lost their job and have ended up in financially unstable environments, they have a lot to say about our systems of like how to get food. Um, like most of us don't go to food shelves. We can afford our food. And there's a shame element of people who go to get like the free food or free services. And so I just, it's an interesting thing to think about what happens when we actually need for ourselves. Like, so maybe it's not always about like money. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm because it's really hard to situate ourselves differently in this passage. Yeah. Well, and I think that circles us back to like the question of grace and that idea of bending down, because what we're ultimately talking about is getting proximate, right? Like what you just shared is when I talk to people who have lost their home or don't have the ability, you know, to afford food, like, like going to a grocery store, but they go to a food shelf, you know, it's similar to someone who doesn't have their freedom and you're going to hear their story about how they, you know, how they found themselves to be incarcerated. Like there is a, a, a proximity that you're willing to have and that you're intentionally doing that creates a new narrative for how you understand the complexities of our world. Right. Why I think every felon should be afforded the opportunity for a job. Like yes. I don't think a felony record should preclude you from having a job. <laughs> oh. Partly this, I mean, to put ourselves in the position of not being the landowner or in the system, one of the things we can kind of add to the conversation as well is to say, some people who are practicing and gleaning might actually be your neighbor whose field didn't harvest well this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's also a part of protection for ourselves is this year, I might be the one who other people are gleaning from my field, but next year I might have to go glean from someone else's field because for whatever reason, my crop didn't turn out. And if as a society, we can trust that ever, that the people as a whole are doing this practice, I know I'm going to be okay, just as I'm also making sure you're going to be okay. So can we see ourselves communally as part of this challenge of like seeing ourselves in both positions? Mm-hmm. But as you're bringing that example up, Lisa, I'm thinking about the word dignity that I feel like is a my interpretation of gleaning is that it provides a lot of dignity. <laughs> For the, because the person who is needing the resources is still going out to choose the resources they need instead mm-hmm. of just someone else assuming what they need. And so maybe I need to go to someone's olive trees. Maybe I need to go to someone's vineyard. Maybe I need to so- go to someone's barley. Maybe I need all three, but I get to choose what season to go out in and what field to go on because of my own needs. And I'm thinking about actually... Um, Ace in the City uh, is an organization here in Minneapolis that uh, has this place called the Center of Belonging, and they opened a Flourish Flourish Food Market. The Flourish Food Market is a um, it's open on the first and third Wednesdays of the month, and it provides plant based food um, for that is free, fresh, and healthy. 
and it's set up like a grocery store instead of being set up like a food pantry. So it's all fresh, which is very hard to find at food pantries. And you do your own grocery shopping. You choose, Mm -hmm. I would really like lettuce today, or I would really like potatoes today. And we forget how many people in poverty actually don't get that choice anymore because the way our systems are set up. So even something simple like choose what kind of vegetable you want. And also I'm going to assume that you might want vegetables, not just rice is, is a bit of dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and can, you know, that's just one, one example from one organization that I think provides a lot of dignity because it's also assuming some people who are poor might want to be vegetarians or vegans. Can we support them in that choice, even though they're poor and say, that's not a choice that's just isolated to people of means who want to be vegetarian or vegan. But then we got to give them access to fresh food in a way that keeps their dignity and allows them to make their dietary choices. Yeah. Like simple, but not simple. Right. Right. I mean, it really gets to the question and there's a book about this, like when helping hurts, you know, like how, how often do our means of helping actually end up causing more pain and, and a loss of dignity when we, we, we have to, see the whole person like you're saying so let's go back to verse two because this is like where we it's it's so you're saying we made it all the way to verse two (laughs) well we talked about gleaning but now we're going to go back to see how it came up so in verse two who brings up gleaning Ruth. ruth does So why am I pausing to ask that question? How does Ruth the Moabite know about gleaning, which is an Israelite Hebrew Hebraic tradition? Okay, this is one of those places we can read too fast, which is not going to be the tradition at 40 Orchards or Searching the Sacred as we're just in verse two. (laughs) But um, to notice that Ruth, the woman from Moab, is familiar with this Hebraic tradition, this Israelite tradition of gleaning. How does she know about it? And what does that say about her relationship with Naomi, this journey of moving from Moab to Israel, that by the time we get to chapter two, verse two, she is the one talking to Naomi about a tradition of Naomi's people that will provide for Ruth. How has she gotten there? How does she know about that? What does it mean for her to not only know about it, but consciously bring it up and engage with it and trust that it's for her? It reminds me a little bit of like in 40 Orchards, like when we do studies with people who aren't evangelical (laughs) and like they study something and they're like, well, yeah. And everybody else who's evangelical is like, well, like it's just a struggle. And they're like, well, this is the, this is what it says. And so I feel like it's like for like Ruth is like, well, this is, this is what y'all do. Right. Which means somebody has, somebody has told her things from the Torah and she's believing them. You know, and, and. And it feels a little bit like we might be juxtaposing it coming from Ruth versus it coming from Naomi. And, and, and maybe that is the case. Maybe Ruth heard it through the grapevine of people talking about this new thing happening over in 
this new people group that have established themselves in this land over there. And like, man, they actually look out for people. And like, if we ever find ourselves in a famine, maybe we should go there. <laughs> Ironically, that's where they came from, um, is a famine. Um, but, but it also makes me wonder though, like maybe as they were going back, Naomi said to Ruth at one point, worse comes to worse. Like, I know we don't have much going for us right now, but worse comes to worse we can glean. And, and then getting back to the land and being around everyone, I wonder how hard that would be for Naomi to be the one to actually pull the trigger on it. Because it's one thing to say we could do this. It's another thing to actually do it in the face of your relatives and everybody else who's looking at your lot in life and judging you. And so the fact that it comes from Ruth to me feels a little bit like a little natural for whatever reason, whether she heard it and it's this like the legend of Israel being this great place for the people that need to glean, or if it came from Naomi because she's like, man, if we find ourselves without food, I know we can get it. But in some ways, like Naomi's for sure going to be a part of the, what Ruth is taking in because Naomi hears there's bread. Yes. She like, she decides to go back. So yeah. in some ways they're already like trusting, like Ruth has had to get on board with like, I'm going to trust this deal. Like, I don't know if it means she's converted. I don't know. Maybe she did, but it doesn't say she's still the Moabite. She's not the Israelite. And here's the thing. They left in a famine, but not everybody left. There was food. We already established that the last, like earlier when we were talking. So apparently Elimelech didn't trust the gleaning. Because if he didn't have enough food, he should have been able to find enough in his community where gleaning was possible. And so for, for Naomi to go back and to trust that there is enough is such a, is a role reversal from her husband. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> and maybe that also adds to this idea that I think very, it's quite possible that Ruth heard this from Naomi. But, but in chapter two, Ruth is the one bringing it up. She's absorbed it. She's internalized it. She's trusted it, that she's the one taking the initiative mm -hmm. on what she has heard. Maybe that relates back to this conversation about uh, Naomi struggles as she gets back to town. She's struggling with bitterness. Maybe she's not seeing everything, but Ruth, ha Ruth has absorbed it and Ruth is taking the lead. All right, this cleaning practice. I think it's time to engage in that. Let's see, let's see where that takes us. And I, I just love what you said there about like, what if Elimelech never had to leave, but he didn't want to glean? Yeah. He didn't want to put himself in this less privileged position. He would rather leave than be less privileged. And what if that's a part of how Naomi and Ruth are coming into the story differently is like, no, we'll, we can, we'll trust that. We're going to try that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine that if something were to happen to me, it would be a whole lot easier to go to a place where it's natural that I'm the one in need than if I had to face all of my family and loved ones and say, I need help. Like, if I'm going to need help, I'd rather do it with strangers than do it with people that I'm disappointing or letting down. Mm. That's, yeah. Are we gleaning that? Maybe that tells us something about gleaning that we haven't named yet, which is that it's vulnerable. 
It means we, with people, potentially with people we know, we have to go onto their field and get their help. It's not a strain. It's, it's not a foreign land unless we're, but it's, it's, it's a little more intimate and vulnerable than some of the ways that we tend to have societal care. Well, it's why we'd rather go to the store to buy something than ask to borrow it from a neighbor. <laughs> like we really just don't want to go ask for help of, of any sort anywhere. I don't even think to borrow an egg from my neighbor because a store is like, you know, five minutes away, but they're the house next door to me is literally next door. And I know they have eggs because they make great food. Well, and, and I, so right now as in real time, I'm packing for the boundary waters, um, going on a camping trip and it makes Packing for trips like that or backpacking, if anybody's done more intense camping like that, it reminds me of all the things in the modern world that I take for granted because I suddenly have to plan for them differently. So I do tend to have the assumption in the modern world that I can go to a store whenever I want. And when you car camp, that's also still true. Like you're not outside of civilization so much that you can't go get something you need. When you boundary waters or backpack, like you got to make sure you got all the stuff. <laughs> Um, and it's sort of, it's an interest. I'm just thinking of it right now as you're talking about borrowing things from the neighbor, because it, it's a different version of me realizing like how many times I run to the store before something like this makes me realize how much I assume I can always run to the store and in running to the store, I'm not asking for help or giving help. It's just a different, it's one of the many ways our modern constructs are, are different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why our houses keep getting so big. We got to put more, we keep more stuff in them. All the stuff, all the stuff we keep getting. So, so when we're in this uh, place, so Ruth brings it up. Naomi says to her, yes, daughter, go. And she went. And as luck would have it, uh, by fortune, by fate, the land that she goes to belongs to Boaz. How do we, how do we hold that, that the Bible is talking about that? Like literally the phrase in my Bible is as luck would have it (laughs) by fate, by chance. Meaning what I want, what we would think it would say is the Ruach spirit of God guided Ruth to the field of Boaz, who we've already named as this valorous man. Or Boaz was guided to find Ruth and bring Ruth to his field. But the phrasing actually is, she happened upon it by chance. The, the, the Hebrew is mikre, which is unforeseen meeting or event, accident, happening, chance, fortune, fate. There's not really a way to read it other than accidental. <laughs> Why would no. that be there? I, well, I kind of like that it's there. Yeah. Because, cause like, in some ways, I'm like, well, thank goodness. Like, because sometimes it just isn't. <laughs> is it all spiritual? Is none of it spiritual? Like, what is spiritual? Like, yeah, happened upon it. Even though it felt you know, like it was the plan the whole time. <laughs> so this is going to, like, expose my really, really dorky side. I mean, I'm already pretty dorky on this podcast, but this is the really dorky side of me. Uh, 
in the Lord of the Rings um, behind the scenes, they talk about Tolkien and like how he wrote Lord of the Rings and some of the interesting tidbits about it. And he uh, highlighted the use of the word catastrophe and how like it's a sudden act of like destruction. And that's how he framed like the bad things in Lord of the Rings, like Sauron, the, you know, like the, the bad one, all that. It's like a catastrophe that happens, but there's no English equivalent to something good happening. And so he termed this, this term, uh, a U catastrophe, EU catastrophe, and it's the Greek, you know, EU for good. And so it's a U catastrophe. So it's a sudden infusion of random goodness. And I feel like that is kind of what's applying here is that it, as it happened, like as fate would have it as a random event of pure goodness came upon, she was in the field of Boaz. And I, I kind of love that idea of there being these like moments of unexplainable, like stars aligning in a way. There you go. Lord of the I love Rings that nerdiness. Me, it's great. Well, because it is like, what do we, you know, what I, what I feel like I hear there is sort of, as we allow for God guiding things, do we also allow for chance? And do we allow for chance to happen in both directions? Like sometimes we just have bad luck. Sometimes we just have good luck. Um, do we have, do we allow for catastrophe and do catastrophe? <laughs> do we, Yeah. like, it, is there a way that that's a part of the story? Maybe even just here in this story, there's this, there's so much of these women trying to figure it out. And um, here's, here's, I'm going to quote, uh, um, Pedro uh, Otuma wrote a book. Um, you might know him from On Being. He does. He like he hosts the On Being poetry episodes. He's written several books. He's a he's a but it, but it's um I'm just probably getting it's his name wrong. It's from the Corimila community in Ireland. Okay. Anyway, so he's got a lovely book on Ruth. I'm going to read a couple things uh, from his book. The book of Ruth is not a template for what a strategic plan should look like. It's a story of what people do in desperate circumstances with limited options. The Hebrew Bible narratives, while being profoundly moral, do not create a false equivalency between the abstract pure and the embodied complicated. God is the wrestle that is found in the wrestle, not the imagination of the wrestle. None of these women were saved by divine intervention. They were saved by their own savvy, pluck, risk, and fortitude. I like that. Ruth and Naomi with their savvy, pluck, risk, and fortitude. Ruth goes gleaning and ends up on Boaz's field. I mean, can it be a little bit of both? I mean, I'm not trying to like shoot down like what you just read, but I love the idea of it's like, I mean, they were obviously strategic. Go and glean. I want to find, I want to glean in a field where someone's going to look upon me with grace, right? So there's a very intent access to this thing that goes on in the community and you catastrophe strikes, right? Like, and they end up in the right field. I mean, I, I feel like there's an and there as opposed to it only. And, and so, I mean, cause they could have ended up in like five fields, you know, and, and none of them would have been a well, helpful suitor, you know? What's true is that had she not tried, she would not have discovered any U catastrophe. Exactly. So sometimes just trying can help you yeah. discover it. And can we see God in all of it? Like, does it, like, I'm, as you were saying, that Jason, I was thinking, like, why do we think God's interventions have to be dramatic? Like, is God in, 
like God small already little acts. Yeah. God already spoke through the Torah that um, that you should practice gleaning. And now Ruth and Naomi's needs are being provided through gleaning. Isn't that God, even if God's not mentioned here? Right. Well, this is that thing of like holding if everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it could be dicey. <laughs> but if every like if if what if it's true. I mean, if, it, if what's good in your eyes is following the Torah, then people are going to encounter the divine through your actions. Well, everyone, that wraps up episode five in our series on Ruth. We're so glad that you are joining us again on this journey. Next episode, episode six, will be our final episode of this season. And then we'll be taking a break during Advent and coming back with a new season where we will be covering chapters three and four of this dynamic book. So thanks again for joining us on Searching Sacred.